2: Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution Interview Series. Was there a Scottish Revolution? Welcome back to the Scottish Revolution interview series. Throughout the series, no matter which aspect of the topic we were specifically dealing with, I asked each historian the same question. Was there a Scottish Revolution? This was the question which sparked so much debate on academic Twitter, and by extension laid the foundation for the interview series as a whole. My plan was always to compile everyone's answers into a single episode, to best appreciate the range of opinion on this controversial question. The answers will be in the order the full interviews were published, which are roughly in the order they took place, and they may relate to the historian's particular expertise. If you'd like to better appreciate one historian or another's answer, then by all means scroll down the Pax Panica feed and listen to the full interview if you haven't already, or want to spark your memory. None of the answers relate to one another. They aren't responding to the previous answer, and so they may repeat similar points, or contradict one another. Also keep in mind that this is a very complex question, which requires a very complex answer. Entire books have been written about it. So please keep in mind that these historians have made sacrifices for the sake of brevity. One final consideration. This is only a snapshot of a very vibrant field. After all, these are only the views of those historians who agreed to come on the podcast. There are many more perspectives within the field of early modern Scotland and beyond, so please keep that in mind. I'm very grateful to all of those who agreed to spare their time and come on the podcast. I really enjoyed each and every one, and I hope that this interview series played a small part in making academic history more available to the public. Without further delay, let's start with Dr. Andrew Lind. Was there a Scottish Revolution?
3: I'll get I'll, I'll get my soapbox. Get my... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is uh, this is an interesting question and. I guess this is spawned from uh, a discussion which happened on Twitter, which was I was a part of. And part of this was, so basically on on, on this Twitter conversation, I went on the wind up a little bit and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suggested that there wasn't a, a Scottish Revolution and uh, we were discussing about this before we came on air, but I think that revolution is one of these terms which the historiography in general likes to throw about because it's this kind of eye-catching, sexy term and it it, it gets attention. However, I think that there's there's a risk that it can mask some of the complexities and some of the the subtleties of the 1640s because I think if you were to ask the Covenanters particularly in the earlier part of the period so for kind of from. 1638 to 1643 shall we say they would not have seen themselves as revolutionary if anything they would have seen themselves as quite conservative because it's all about trying to get back to the true form of the reformation they're not, they're not trying to pull down monarchical government or anything like that if anything they're trying to restore this kind of quasi-mythical version of the past or the quasi-mythical interpretation of what the future should look like so in terms of a, a revolution i think you could argue that it, it isn't a revolution and actually when the the Covenanting regime does get an opportunity to enact a revolution, that being when obviously the English parliamentarians execute Charles I in 1649, the Scottish nation as a whole balks at the idea that they would have any other system other than a Stuart on the throne, and they very quickly secure uh, Charles II as King of Scots. And obviously that then produces an interesting debate between Charles II and uh, the leading covenanters as to how exactly they envisage... Uh, Charles's rule as King of Scots moving forward. But I do accept that, that there, is, there is revolutionary aspects to the covenanting regime, particularly that you essentially get the removal of royal control of Scotland post-1639, essentially, and you replace it increasingly with a covenanting theocracy, which is incredibly powerful. But the mechanisms of state for Scotland remain largely the same. There is no attempt to kind of rip down and, and replace the system of government with anything new. There is a bit of a moral revolution, especially, and, and John Young's written a lot about this, about the uh, the covenanting parliaments and about how eager the covenanting parliaments are to support the Kirk in trying to enforce this moral revolution or moral discipline upon the people of Scotland. However, I think it's very interesting that if you start calling it the covenanting rebellion, you get a very different response from a lot of people and, you know, you can quite easily argue that it's not a revolution and it's a rebellion and you know the, there's a there's connotations with both those terms which then impact how you interpret the civil wars and I'm not yeah part of my anti-revolution stance is really just to try and get people to think about that and to wind some people up I, I will admit <laughs> but I think it's very interesting that if you do if you call it the English revolution you tend to sorry the, the Scottish revolution you you tend to get a, a certain response whereas you call it, the, the covenanting rebellion, you get a different response. And whether the, the covenanting regime is just a very successful rebellion or a very sex- successful re- revolution is uh, probably quite an interesting debate that we all should be
2: having. Dr. Chris Langley. Was there a Scottish revolution?
4: <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think there was. I i, I always come back to a conversation that I had as an undergraduate. Um, where I, and maybe people who know me have heard this story loads of times, I'm, re- I'm really sorry if they're listening. But I remember a, a conversation as an undergraduate I had with with my supervisor, and um, I was trying to be contrary and explain why there wasn't a, a revolution in England in the middle of the 17th century. And he turned around to me and he said, They cut the guy's head off, and that was sort of it. Now, <laughs> so that was conversation. Now, in a Scottish context, Obviously, they don't subscribe a warrant um, to to execute the king. There are these kind of these emphases on on loyalty. But revolutions are are described by people after the event. And um, we have different criteria from those at the time. And while I'm not suggesting that those those emphases on, on moderation were feigned, they weren't, they they clearly believed them, they believed what they were doing. I think this constant asking of questions about well, where do you stand now? Where do you stand on this changing issue? What you have is this this hill that they all start going down, this snowball effect. And the more and more they're asked about, well what what's your stance on it? You know, declare where you are now, tell everyone, swear on this, you know, all these quite Traditional acts, you know, declarations, proclamations, and oaths uh, have have much longer histories in in, in, in Scotland, uh, in particular. But every time they ask one of those questions, you know, the temperature goes up a little bit, and ultimately, by the time, despite what happens in the 1660s, where you know there are revocations and um, acts of oblivion. Um, on what's happened between 1638 and 1660 as as Alan Kennedy in the the International Covenant volume that I edited suggests that restoration state not only has to deal with the memory of those years but it also absorbs some of the things um, that it's facing and it absorbs some of the almost learnings of that so the desire to turn back time if you like I mean that might be one desire in, 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 some, in some cases, but what you actually have in 1660 is a very different situation than you have in 1638, where they, they don't forget this. And often historians talk about forgetting as, um, you know, well, how could people forget? It would be impossible because so many people died. And, and that's absolutely one way to look at it. But in terms of people being made to declare their political allegiances very publicly, In this period is something that they don't turn the clock back on and in these kind of like um, squaring up to the state the squaring up to political authority that doesn't change either so what what you've got here is I've argued this before there's a deep continuity in some of the practices in terms of religion that go on people use those as as a form of kind of comfort I suppose and a touchstone Parochial discipline doesn't change that much um, across this period, but overall, I mean, yeah, the, the changes that that accumulate over this this twenty two year period are revolutionary. Um, now, we can pick up the week, go into the weeds on on what that means, on what the word revolution means, but I mean, this is this is twenty two years of turbocharging political thought that they cannot take back and I would argue as, as Alan Kennedy does uh, probably better than than I would that they in some cases they don't want to turn back everything they don't want to turn back um, all of those changes and one might argue that they know they can't the early modern state knows its limitations and so what you end up with in 1660 is you know a period where they are still living with the consequences of what's happened for those previous 22 years so in short
2: yes this is a revolution So, Dr. Carrie Schultz, was there a Scottish revolution?
5: Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. And I think uh, part of the reason this is an interesting question is it was my fault for for maybe raising this on a Twitter (laughs) debate a while ago. Yeah, so it's something that I've struggled with. And I obviously included revolution in the title of my thesis, and it's also in the title of my book. So it's something that I need to think about. And I kind of probably already have a stance on. So one of the ways that I think about it is it was pioneered, sort of this term of the Scottish Revolution was pioneered by David Stevenson in the 1970s. And he really put forward the idea that it was revolutionary because it resulted in a massive transfer of power uh, from the king to Parliament and it also resulted in the abolition of the clerical estate. So there was a big change in the structure of the Scottish government and there was a big movement of power and a transition of power. And so I think for Stevenson, it was a very political, it was a dynamic political change that made it really a revolutionary moment in Scottish history. And I think more recently, we've seen a lot of fantastic work being done by scholars um, such as Laura Stewart, as well as other scholars that are included in Chris Langley's uh, National Covenant volume. And I think they're actually really showing how this moment in history and particularly the National Covenant allows disenfranchised groups in Scotland who never really participated in politics before. So maybe people who did not go to universities or women, um, they're able to use the covenant as a way to participate in the political process, as a way to create their own identities and create some sort of collective political movement. Um, In that way, it is really revolutionary and empowering. And so I think On that side, I would agree that the Scottish Revolution was revolutionary in the change in political structure, in the ideas that are being put forth that sort of move Scotland from an absolute monarchy to, you know, trying to get to a limited monarchy, Um, particularly when we look at sort of the purge of Parliament after the engagement uh, in the late 1640s. I think there's a lot that goes on that really does create moments of massive political upheaval and change. But on the other hand, working a lot on the royalists, I do think we need to be pretty cognizant of continuities as well. So ideas that are maybe not changing as much. Um, So when we look at the royalists, I think we need to be aware of their ways of perpetuating ideas about divine right kingship or about the king's sovereignty over the church Um, So I think it is an interesting interplay between, you know, what's really revolutionary and what kind of creates fundamental changes in the the politics of Scotland, and then what ideas are actually more continuous with the past. Um, So I think when we look at both Covenanters and Royalists together, we see an interesting dynamic. But on the whole, I would say I do think it is a revolution. I think it is a revolutionary moment in Scottish history, but I think, you know, accounting for both sides is probably a wise way to go.
2: Dr. Mickey Brock. My second to last question, which is one I've asked everyone, is do you think there was a Scottish Revolution?
0: Do I think there was, was a Scottish Revolution? You know, it's funny before we had this call and I, you know, was anticipating maybe this question would be asked, talking to my friends who study both the American and French Revolution and just how how sort of prominent these sort of questions are, and I think it matters because the idea of revolution has been uh, very prominent in historiography. Um, now, my answer, of course, is it depends on how you define rev- revolution and for whom, <laughs> right? Um, which is a very obvious uh, thing to say. I mean, my more seriously, though, my answer is yes, I think there was, um, but it was very uneven. It wasn't consistent. Um, I think the biggest thing that was revolutionary about um, about the sort of covenanting movement, about the events of the period from 1638 into the Cromwellian occupation, is that it did create, and this is Laura Stewart's sort of idea, but I agree with her, this sort of imagined national community that was reinforced just through the communal process of swearing in the covenants. And in places like Ayr, going beyond swearing those covenants to constantly reminding the community of their membership in this covenant. And this imagined community, it was not just national, right? But I also think it helped to sort of cement certain aspects of regional communities and local parish communities. So I think you have a potentially a revolution in terms of people's political participation, awareness of membership in this community. But as I say, it's really uneven and it's not consistent chronologically either. So in air, yes, there was a Scottish revolution. But is that something you can say was regionally consistent? I don't think that you necessarily can. But, but I think the covenants did something, and I think they, they mattered quite a lot um, in that way, particularly because of that sort of communal act of, of swearing, not once, but twice. I think that, that meant quite a
2: lot. Dr. Kirstine McKenzie, do you recognise the term Scottish Revolution? Do you believe there was a Scottish Revolution? Um,
6: no, not really. Um, and- I'll I'll, I'll tell you why, Um, it it really, the term Scottish Revolution really comes from David Stevenson. Now at the time, the use of the Scottish Revolution as a term was perfectly acceptable, because this was in the 1970s. And at this time, uh, Christopher Hill's perspective on the English Revolution, which uh, he he, uh, promoted, Uh, which involved, obviously, the levellers and the diggers and this idea that England had gone through a revolution, sort of Marxist revolution from below, um, was all the rage. It was very, very fashionable. Um, So when David Stevenson was writing his book, and he admitted this himself, he just decided to call it the Scottish Revolution because that's what was going on at the time. Um, So, no, not really, but it is a reflection Of when the book was written and what was fashionable at the time and what historians were thinking. So it's not a criticism of David Stevenson per se or the idea of the Scottish Revolution. It's just to understand where it came from. Um, But I still believe in a very much a three kingdoms um, perspective because the Stuarts ruled over three very diverse kingdoms. And although at the moment, historians have somewhat retreated back into national histories of Scotland, Ireland and England during this period, I still believe that regardless, I think many historians in this period will still see um, the the 17th century as a century of three Stuart kingdoms, rather than just as uh, separate entities of Scotland, England and Ireland.
7: Professor Godet, was there a Scottish revolution? If we are asking the question, was there a Scottish revolution, we have to be clear about defining our terms. And revolution can be defined in different ways. And the best thing I can do is to give you my definition of it, which is about seizure of political power in a state. And it's about use of distinct ideology. So the revolutionaries appeal to a distinct ideology so they know they're doing something different and it is accompanied by large-scale restructuring of the political system so the revolutionaries govern differently and they use popular mobilization as well so the upheaval is so large that you know the common people in some senses are involved in it. So a revolution in this sense is distinct from say a palace coup. It's also distinct from something like a civil war or a war of succession. In those terms, was there a Scottish revolution? Yes, I think the Covenanters did seize power. They seized power successfully. They governed for a number of years. They restructured the political system in ways that had many long-term consequences, some very long-term consequences the ideology also played itself out. The popular mobilisation is interesting. That's not necessarily a long-term thing, but it underlines the distinct character of the revolution. And I think the revolutionary character of the revolution can be underlined by the way in which it even leads to some broader social and economic change in the way that the state organises or intervenes in the economy and society.
2: So, yes. Dr Louise Yeoman, was there a Scottish revolution?
8: (laughs) Well, it's kind of got elements of it, hasn't it? What they really want to do is to check royal power. And that isn't so revolutionary. You know, bodies like parliaments have wanted to check royal power for centuries. So, you know, that that's an old song, you might say. But it has within it the seeds of revolutionary things. You know, the fact that people are sort of willing to listen to ministers like Samuel Rutherford or visionaries like Margaret Mitchell. And the fact that people are sort of toying with godly authority that that to me, that's got the seeds of revolution. They never quite go there. We don't get a sort of Scottish bare-bones parliament or anything like that. But they're sort of toying with quite revolutionary notions there's a revolutionary seed there i think you maybe see it more when you get to the era of the later covenanters the united society people who oh they say very very radical things and they excommunicate the king that's pretty radical i i can't imagine the you know the the covenanters of the haiti of covenant saying yeah we're going to excommunicate the king they would not do that but you've got the seeds of that kind of extremist revolutionary thought lying there. So I don't know that I'd call it a revolution, but it's got the seeds of the revolutionary.
2: Dr Sharon Adams, was there a Scottish revolution?
6: Now that is an interesting question. My one word answer is yes, but I think I'd like to recast the question and actually answer and say, I think there is certainly revolution and counter-revolution. And in fact, there's maybe more than one revolution at this period. And what I'd add to that is how I think I would justify my yes, is not just my perception, but I do think the sense that contemporaries were aware that they were doing something different, that they were turning politics, society, polity upside down. Yes, the stress continuity, the stress legitimacy, and with the very fact they have to do that indicates to me they are aware that they are doing something revolutionary.
2: Professor Laura Stewart, was there a Scottish Revolution?
6: I think I, I I
9: would want to argue that there is a Scottish revolution. Um, and I, I
2: I suspected you might. <laughs> <laughs>
9: um, and of course, I, I want to reiterate that it's not me that came up with that idea. It was David Stevenson. And when David Stevenson talked about the Scottish revolution, he meant a, a political and constitutional revolution in which there was a transformation in government affected by violence. What I partly wanted to do with the book was explore um, another dimension to that, which is the appeal to the people Mm. that I think is absolutely crucial for explaining the success of the Covenanters um, up to 1641. But there's another revolutionary outcome that I wanted to stress in the book, and that was the way in which an archipelagic conflict on a scale unseen um, since the wars of the 1290s, transformed the Scottish state. I saw it as a period in which state formation was accelerated um, and the um, Covenanters were able to mobilize the resources of a relatively poor society in, in ways that, that would have would have been almost unthinkable um, to, to James VI and I, and even to Charles I. Um, and that legacy is an important one in, in fiscal terms. Um, the, the 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 fiscal regime that's created in the 1640s influences the way that people try to raise money for the rest of the century. But I think what needs more investigation is the way in which the 1640s changed the way or might have changed the way that people thought about government and what government was for and what it should be doing and how people should participate in it. Um, and those are very exciting debates that again link what happened in the 1640s to those bigger questions um, about early modernity. So that's my Scottish revolution. Um, I would also say that um, there are people who are motivated by the capacity for the national covenant to generate uh, a a, a reformation. Um, And they want to see um, society made anew. They want a moral reformation. Um, And that dimension can't be forgotten in terms of understanding what motivated people um, to, to take the actions they did at the end of the 1630s.
2: Dr. Alan Macdonald, was there a Scottish revolution?
10: Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the key thing about what happened in sixteen thirty nine to forty one is what happened in Parliament. Basically, there's some wonderful moments in the Parliament of sixteen thirty-nine to forty-one. Um, one of which is in the summer of sixteen forty, the, the Crown attempted to prevent Parliament from meeting by not sending the King's Commissioner to constitute the session. Parliament met decided that that didn't matter, elected a president, which was without precedent, and just carried on. Effectively, what this parliament did in doing that, and in doing a number of other things, asserting its authority, was to declare that the political nation as represented by parliament had a superior claim to be the sovereign of Scotland than even the king himself. So that if the king failed to exercise his duty as sovereign, that duty could be exercised by parliament. And if parliament and the king disagreed, parliament was superior. And I think that's that's the, the most striking thing about the Covenanting Revolution, is that it basically declared what we would recognise as constitutional monarchy. Okay, it didn't last. It, it it didn't stick because of of other things that happened subsequently. But effectively, in sixteen thirty nine to forty one, what the Scottish Parliament was doing was very much like what the English Parliament did in the Glorious Revolution. Uh, we we laud and and look back on the Glorious Revolution as part of the the great Whig narrative of of British constitutional history as as a great moment perhaps because it stuck, in a sense, but we almost ignore the fact that these ideas hadn't just come out of nowhere, they'd been around for decades. And in the British context, at least, the first place they really make a a mark is in that um, revolutionary parliamentary session of 1639-41. to
2: Dr. Clare McNulty, was there a Scottish Revolution?
11: <laughs> well, that's a big question, Sam. And I think you, I know where you're going with this. And people have lots of different opinions on this one. But I would tend to agree with David Stevenson in his kind of cautious labelling of the Scottish uh, Revolution. So I think that, yes, there was a you know fundamental change to the character of government in Scotland kind of in and after 1638, and there was certainly a constitutional revolution and i know some historians have noted the revolutionary potential of 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 kind of the the military at the time as well so i suppose what you know i was trying to do for my own research was question whether there was a moral revolution and that's yeah a tough a tough question to to answer and i suppose within that i was wondering what was the role of church discipline in this moral revolution And I suppose for me, I wanted to try and kind of step away from maybe elite thinkers and have a look at what was going on at parish level. So what was going on in these, you know, Edinburgh parishes in the 1630s, 1640s? Yeah, to try and kind of understand, you know, was there a revolution? Was there a moral revolution? And was there uh, what was the role of of church discipline uh, within that? And I suppose from my thesis, I found that there was definite efforts to attempt a moral revolution so if you look at the the ministerial change that happened in 1638 and 1639 the move from sort of Episcopalian to Presbyterian ministers and if you look at kind of letters between ministers and uh, those kind of sources it did seem like they were attempting a moral revolution and then when I looked at the Kirk Session records and certainly for South Leith, St. Cuthbert's, and the Canongate I could see that there was an effort to improve the moral standards of the parish, whether that was through kind of a stricter observance of the Sabbath, harsher punishments for fornicators and adulterers and things like that. So what I found is that they were definitely attempting a moral revolution, but I just felt that they ultimately were unable to achieve that goal. And I think for me, the most telling thing was the kind of continued sort of misbehavior in the eyes of the church, at least of people, despite this effort to increase godly standards, I suppose the people were kind of continuing to behave as before. So I felt that the Covenanters were hoping to achieve a moral revolution, but that ultimately they failed to do so.
2: Professor Alan McInnes, was there a Scottish revolution?
12: Absolutely. But it, it didn't, it was not terminal dates for a couple of years. It was a revolution that changed how, the, it didn't turn the world upside down, but it certainly changed and transformed political life in Scotland, and indeed cultural life, and indeed also to a certain extent religious life. Uh, but above all, it created um, a more, it, it broadened, if you like, the public debate, the public what was the political nation, and that was broadened and transformed in the 1640s. And it did not go away when the restoration tried to return it to the aristocracy. I mean, there is a totally depressing view of Scottish history, where it's all about crown and nobility from the 15th century to the 18th century and nothing changes. What really changed hugely and transformatively in the 17th century was covenanting, and that created a revolutionary situation and a radicalism that continued for the rest of the century and into the 18th. So that's that's what I would say. It's, it's, it is a state of mind that has changed, not uh, necessarily just offices or uh, how government works.
2: Dr. Alan Kennedy, was there a Scottish revolution? That is a, an interesting question. and I suppose it
13: depends what you mean by by Scottish. Um I mean there is a revolution in uh, between 1637 and 1641 there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There is a massive change in the, the basic fundamental structures of of the Scottish state. Um so in that sense yes there, there's clearly a, a Scottish revolution. I mean it's it, it it ends up running into the ground so it doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't last you know forever but I think there's definitely a revolution. The problem is I think over that Scottish part because what happens in Scotland 1637 to 41 and then what happens throughout the 1640s and 1650s is so heavily bound up with what's going on elsewhere in the british isles i mean i don't think i don't think you get the covenanting movement um without multiple monarchy without the fact that charles the first is also king of england and and king of ireland Um, and equally the um you don't get a successful revolution you don't get the Covenanters um, winning the Two Bishops Wars without the British context, without Charles I finding his resources hobbled by what's by the political crisis in in England, um, and also the, the, the subsequent course of the revolution after 1641 makes no sense at all, unless you ex- you understand the British context. Um, so I think the way I would I would um, frame this is there is a Scottish Revolution clearly. But we have to see it as one component of a much wider series of British revolutions that are also happening. Um, Which means, unfortunately, understanding this period, I think more so than almost any other period in early modern history, requires you to understand not just Scotland, but what's going on elsewhere. Um, So, yes, to a Scottish revolution, but only within the wider umbrella of British revolutions going on at the same time.
2: There we have it. One question. 13 different historians, 13 different answers. Some answers came to opposite conclusions, others aligned neatly and complemented each other. All of them are based on interpretations of the evidence. After listening to this interview series and to this collection of answers, it's up to you. Which of these answers did you find most convincing? Was there a Scottish revolution? As a lecturer I had once said, those who sit on the fence get machine-gunned off, so better make your choice before she hunts you down. Thank you once again to each of my interviewees who took time out of their busy schedules to speak to me and to bring their research to you. They are, in order of appearance, Dr. Andrew Lind, Dr. Chris Langley, Dr. Carrie Schultz, Dr. Mickey Brock, Dr. Kirstine McKenzie, Professor Julian Goodair, Dr. Louise Yeoman, Dr. Sharon Adams, Professor Laura Stewart, Dr. Alan MacDonald, Dr. Claire McNulty, Professor Alan McKinnis, and Dr. Alan Kennedy. Thanks to each of them for speaking with me, and thanks to you for listening.
13: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
14: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week, over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: So, I I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So, bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me, because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.
12: Let Mysteries
4: at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe,